Welcome to a very special edition of the Weekly Appellate Report for June 29th, 2018. Two days ago, Anthony McLeod Kennedy, Senior Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, announced his retirement, effective at the end of July. Appointed by Ronald Reagan, Kennedy spent 30 years on the high court and came to define its course, casting a number of swing votes and consequential appeals on gay rights, abortion, free speech, campaign finance, gun rights, criminal justice, and environmental law, among others. Most notable about his decisive votes was how they alternatingly and sometimes surprisingly swung cases in favor of parties on both sides of the political center. His fifth vote established the right of same-sex couples to marry, sustained women's access to abortion, guaranteed habeas corpus consideration for Guantanamo Bay detainees, restricted prayer in public schools, required the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases, prevented capital punishment against juvenile offenders, and permitted flag burning as a form of protected speech, in the last case, writing separately in his characteristic grand evocative style that, quote, it is poignant but fundamental that the flag protects those who hold it in contempt. Kennedy's swing vote likewise cemented a right to personal gun ownership, defended the free speech rights of corporations and other associations, decided the 2000 election for George W. Bush, upheld a state's right to be immune from a citizen's lawsuit, truncated the Voting Rights Act, and just this past term, reinforced the use of arbitration, restrained the court from policing political gerrymandering, and limited the power of public sector unions. Kennedy's amenability to being persuaded in a given case distinguished him, particularly in recent years from colleagues whose votes are often regarded as more predictable. And aside from a judicial solicitude to all views, Kennedy has long been known for the kindness and gentility he extends to all people. The former solo practitioner from Sacramento exuded an unpretentious sincerity throughout his ascent to and tenure as the country's most consequential jurist and an altogether uncynical awe for the court's role in sustaining a free democracy. Kennedy's departure as the bench's median justice very likely adumbrates an ideologically rightward tack for the court with a Republican president in office, but specifically what directions the next court will take and which legal doctrines stand most likely for alteration remain somewhat open questions. Of course, that will not stop us from spending much of today's program with five excellent guests forecasting just what Justice Kennedy's retirement will mean for the court's jurisprudence, and particularly those doctrines that most bear Kennedy's imprints. Our guests possess a range of views and ideological predilections. We'll hear from Garrett Epps, professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law, about how Justice Kennedy's small-town roots made him a unique modern justice and contributed to his distinct judicial approach and legacy. Then, Professor Ilya Soman from George Mason will offer a libertarian's take on Justice Kennedy's legacy and what his departure will precipitate. After that, Professor John Culhane from Delaware Law School at Widener University will explain why Kennedy's legacy may well quickly turn to figurative dust. And then, Professor Jonathan Adler from Case Western Reserve University School of Law will forecast the most salient ways the upcoming Roberts Court will differ from the past decades fairly termed Kennedy Court, and who the president might select to be that court's newest member. And finally, Joshua Matz of counsel with Gupta Wessler and a former Kennedy clerk will describe why the exit of the court's persuadable median justice may inexorably lead to heightened public cynicism over the court's legitimacy as an independent and neutral arbiter of the country's most critical disputes. But before hearing from our very illustrious group of guests today, just two short reminders. One, if you haven't found us yet on iTunes and the podcast app, we are now available there. 
So find us on your mobile devices and subscribe, rate, and review us as you may so be inclined. And of course, don't forget that listeners of the podcast are entitled to one hour of California CLE credit for having tuned in. That can be found on the Daily Journal website appended to the page where this podcast appears. With that, we'll welcome in our first guest. He is Garrett Epps. He's a professor of law at University of Baltimore School of Law, also a regular contributor to the Atlantic Magazine Online, and the author of, among other works, Democracy Reborn, the 14th Amendment, and the Fight for Equal Rights in Post-Civil War America. Professor Epps, thanks for being on the show. It's great to be here. So uh, you penned an excellent piece for the Atlantic Magazine Online after Justice Kennedy announced his retirement. I think it really perfectly captures the deeply conflicted feelings that kind of really everyone has about the mm-hmm. justice because over the last many years, he's pretty regularly in, in, in the most salient and the most divisive of cases before the court has kind of given and taken away from either side of the political divide very significant legal wins. And I suppose one interesting theme that you pull out is that what one thing that makes him so unique, or at least understanding how he came to be such a unique uh, jurist on the modern court, it requires one to understand kind of where he came from, his his small town roots from Sacramento. How did that come to, to make him the justice that came to be? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, he has an extraordinary character, and, and, and uh, to meet him is to really realize that someone's, this is a person with very strong personal characteristics, um, a certain level of, of courtesy, kindness. He's genuinely interested in other people. He does not, he takes himself seriously, but not, you know, in, in a way that seems ridiculous. And, uh, you know, I, I trace it back to the fact that he is probably the last justice uh, who will ever come to the United States Supreme Court from a background of small town, what, what used to be called general practice, the lawyer, the local lawyer who was learned, uh, kind of and respected, a kind of Atticus Finch figure and involved in public matters and so forth. Sacramento, California, where he grew up, was not uh, a large town at, at that time. He went away to school. He went to Stanford. He was educated in London and then, of course, Harvard Law School. He came back to California, but he began began his career at Pillsbury Madison and Sutro, which was and remains a large firm in San Francisco. So he seemed to be on track to to a kind of uh, standard, what we would call big law uh, career of, of partnership in a major firm and, and affluence and so forth. But his father, who had been a sole practitioner in Sacramento and a very well-known lobbyist, his father died, I think, rather suddenly uh, only about a year after he had started practice in Sacramento, and he made the choice to come home to keep the family's finances afloat by taking over his father's law practice. He, his wife is a native of Sacramento, someone that he uh, knew growing up, uh, and he lived much of the rest of his life in the house he had been born in. So you can see this is a very rooted way of living. He was a sole practitioner and, uh, you know, while clearly thought well of his abilities and was ambitious, uh, he was not someone who came to Washington uh, and, and sort of thought, how can I get myself on the path to the United States Supreme Court? Mm-hmm. Um, from all accounts, he was really quite happy in Sacramento, happily married, family man. He taught constitutional law at McGeorge University University. 
law school and, and loved that and was named to the court because he was a, a, to, the, to the federal bench as an appellate judge because he was a friend of Ed Meese and he was a friend of Ronald Reagan's and he had helped them from outside. He had never worked in the governor's office. He had never worked directly for a politician, but he had helped Reagan and Meese when they uh, were trying to get some, some school measures passed by the voters. And they thought well of him and President Ford put him on the Ninth Circuit. He was at that time the youngest uh, appellate judge in the country, barely 40 years old. And he uh, continued his life in the same house, with the same neighbors, in the same city, teaching, continued to teach, sat on the Ninth Circuit, uh, by all accounts was really quite happy and was not actively lobbying, as people do and, and have for many years, uh, to move up to the United States Supreme Court. In the end, he was named to the court really because he was doing President Reagan a favor rather than the reverse. The Reagan administration had run into a disaster. They had nominated uh, Robert Bork for the, the uh, seat left open by Lewis Powell. He was rejected by the Democratic Senate because he was uh, too extreme. They then nominated a young conservative, Judge Doug Douglas Ginsburg, from the D.C. Circuit, whose nomination crashed almost immediately because it turned out he had been a, mar a regular marijuana user while he was teaching at Harvard Law School, and of course, the Reagan administration was the just say no administration. So they were really desperate. They needed a nominee who would get through this treacherous, toxic confirmation atmosphere. And there was Kennedy, bright, well thought of, not particularly famous, but, you know, someone with no strikes against him and very likable. And he was approved 97 to nothing. No one voted against him. He went on the court sort of as an unknown. He didn't bring with him a, a long train of writings or so forth. What he brought with him was a kind, the kind of breadth, a vision that you can pick up in a small community where you literally know everybody. You literally know all kinds of people. And he had not spent any of his time laboring, trying to please politicians, working in the executive branch, working in the academy, doing the things that people do when they're hoping to be named to the Supreme Court. I, I think he's probably the last justice who will have this background, but there have been others very distinguished. Lewis Powell came to the court, straight to the court from a similar practice. Uh, Robert Jackson, before he became attorney general, was a sole practitioner in a small town in New York. And it produces a certain kind of sensibility and a certain kind of balance of mind and a certain streak of independence that I think served Kennedy well during his time on the bench. Speaking about the nomination process, or his nomination process and the justice that he replaced it, it seems like a useful way to underscore the importance of the, the change in justice that will occur now. Mm -hmm. uh, he he yeah. was replacing Lewis Powell, who had been in many cases a swing justice and and came to justice kennedy came to in many ways serve a, a similar role over the past generation one that as you remark you know, would have looked differently had that role been filled by uh, robert bork instead mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it seems like a fairly concrete case study into the way in which the next generation of constitutional law might take a divergent path one way or the other depending on obviously who who comes to fill justice kennedy's shoes 
That's right. Well, you know, one thing we can be sure of, whoever names the justice who will fill that seat, and of course the odds are overwhelming that President Trump will name uh, a nominee who will be confirmed, but, you know, even if the Democrats kept the seat open somehow until 2021 uh, and a different president appointed a new justice, that justice, whether a Democratic or Republican appointee, is going to have a pretty clear ideology, is going to be a liberal justice or a conservative justice. There is a very elaborate mechanism now of conservative legal thinking that is vetting and producing these judicial nominees. Justice Kennedy didn't regard himself as a part of any kind of legal movement. He didn't, he wasn't, I think, really, really not interested in what the kind of people who run the Federalist Society thought of him. I think he, you know, it just didn't occur to him, am I following the party line? I don't think he really cared. He, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't moderate. He was a very conservative man. But what he was was independent. And that kind of independence is vanishing from the American judicial system. Yeah, one, one part that you do emphasize in, in your article, and I'll, I'll quote you say his farewell uh, will also be the farewell to even the pretense of dispassionate nonpartisan jurisprudence. And as you described, you know, justices on, on both sides of the political center tend to be more or less predictable. You can generally guess where Justice Alito or Justice Ginsburg will come down on mm-hmm. just about any case that comes before them. And it has mm-hmm. seemed to be the case that you, you, you couldn't say that about Justice Kennedy. And, and so who comes after him will, will I, I guess, make it seem just more or less a a certainty, a fait accompli when a, a given case comes up, which way it might go. I guess, what is the significance of a, a change like that? And is that a fair surmise to make? I think it's a reasonably fair surmise. We're going to, you know, if you really want to know what the post-Kennedy court uh, is going to look like, we've had a very faint version of it since last October, because Justice Kennedy, you know, clearly I, I perceived this early in the term, Justice Kennedy was not feeling great. He seemed tired. He seemed disengaged. Uh, He he was testy on the bench, which was very unusual for him. And his voting patterns uh, don't reflect this independence over the last year. He, in all, in the ideological cases, the highly political cases, he voted with the five, the four justice, the five justice conservative bloc 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. I don't think that had happened in the three decades previous. Uh, to that during his service. So the results did become much more predictable. You take a case like Janus versus Service Employees Union, I mean, I'm so, sorry, uh, American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, the, um, the union dues case, there was no secret how that case was going to come out. Uh, the opinion uh, probably was written before certiorari was granted, uh, and Kennedy voted the line in that. He didn't really dissent. Uh, If you look at the travel ban case, he wrote a very sort of meek, separate opinion, sort of saying it really is uh, very naughty that the president talks about Muslims this way. I wish he would stop, but we support his authority completely. He, He was really a dependable conservative justice in that last year. Now, the difference, of course, is that the court had not taken as many of the high profile ideological cases as I predict it will take in the next few terms, because 
once that five justice, dependable five justice conservative bloc is in place, they are going to begin to swing for the fences in terms of reversing so-called liberal precedents they disagree with, reigning in abortion rights, limiting LGBT rights, sharply cutting back on the government's power to regulate uh, economic life in the country, because they will be confident when they take the case that they have the votes to reach the result that conservative ideology dictates to be the correct one. So the, the, the last year of the court in which the conservatives were triumphant in, in 100% of the uh, highly ideological cases, that's a foretaste of what's coming. But it's a kind of faint foretaste because one of the things that was clearly going on in the autumn of Justice Kennedy's career is that people were sort of hesitating to bring cases and the court was sort of hesitating to grant cases where you didn't know Kennedy was, how Kennedy was going to come out. Because if you were a conservative activist, you might think, well, you know, we wait a year or two and then bring this issue up and we'll have the votes for sure. Or we bring it up now and we're not sure how Tony's going to vote. So I think you're going to see um, a very, very active and aggressive conservative majority on the court beginning in October. And it will look different only in degree from what we've seen over the last year. One more thought about the, this this past term. It, it did seem sort of even more remarkable, just as Kennedy's maybe reticence, or at least just the, the absence of any kind of idiosyncratic classic justice Kennedy opinion, based on the fact that there were at least a couple cases, maybe the most notable among them, the gerrymandering case, that mm-hmm. were teed up really aimed at, at him because he had signaled previously that that issue might be one that's of incredible constitutional consequence that he would maybe want the court to dig into, and then he really kind of just took a, a pass on it. Mm-hmm. You say it, it did seem interesting that uh, there, there were some ones there that he mm-hmm. could have swung, swung at. Well, you know, the gerrymandering case, I think, is an excellent thing to look at um, in a historical context, because that issue, the issue of legislative districting generally, uh, has traditionally been very hard for justices to deal with. It, it It is not easy to come up with legal tests that make sense that limit the power to redistrict without at the same time just being incoherent. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the issue first came in front of the court, you know, the, the whole issue of one person, one vote back during the 1950s and early 60s, the first time it came before the court, one of the justices who had been assigned the opinion um, to say that one person, one vote was the law, one of the justices found the issue so hard that he had a nervous breakdown and had to leave the court. Mm-hmm. So this is a tough issue. It's a tough issue whether we're talking about just equal population, whether we're talking about racial gerrymandering, whether we're talking about political gerrymandering. It's very hard to figure out what a court should do in that area. And I honestly feel like Justice Kennedy just ran out of gas. You know, that yeah. 10 years ago, he might have just said, okay, we're going to do this. We've waited long enough. But, you know, he just was tired. And the same thing in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where he, you know, the, this very difficult reconciliation of two principles that he cared about, religious freedom on the one hand and uh, gay rights on the other, mm-hmm. and and he just took a way out. He mm-hmm. just, he, you know, he just couldn't 
it's a very difficult thing to resolve from his point of view, and he just didn't do it. I, so, you know, that you can argue that, that he may have stayed a year too long. Uh, a lot of people have criticized him for leaving now. You know, what about, you know, the country's bitterly divided. People don't trust the Trump administration. But, you know, when you get into your 80s and you got to go, you got to go. And he, in the end, has got to be the one who decided that. And I think that it had something to do with feeling his age. Yeah, it's one piece of your article that I think um, is kind of not, uh, it's an opinion that maybe isn't universally shared. There seems to be a, a real wide range of, of reactions to the justice's announcement, and, mm-hmm. and a, a big portion of that range includes folks that are very upset about it and maybe even think he is shirking a responsibility that he owes the country to mm-hmm. stay on and, and kind of hold the center in a time of significant political rancor. But um, you write very clearly that you, you, you do not begrudge him this decision that he has served court in his country honorably and, and, and is, should feel entitled to return to uh, his home and enjoy the rest of his, his years. I think that's right. I think, you know, uh, I have met the justice once and we had a, a long talk during which he mostly tried to focus on things he thought I would be interested in rather than talk about himself, followed his career very, very closely. I think most people who've met him would tell you he is genuinely a lovely man, an old style gentleman of the kind that I knew growing up in a small southern town, uh, genuinely courtly and kind. He is not, he was never an egomaniac of the kind that, you know, you might consider Justice Scalia to have been. Uh, or some of the others. He was never someone, I think, who felt that he had sought to be on the court. I think he was called on by a political figure he respected, President Reagan, to serve. And he gave up a life that he really enjoyed. He he had not burned with ambition to come to Washington. Uh, He loved living in his childhood home and raising his family there. He gave it up to serve because the president said, I need you. And, you know, some of what he did, I found just infuriating. Some of his views I thought were retrograde, and some of the things he did I, I found uh, quite admirable. Some of his so-called judicial method I thought was incomprehensible. So even when you agreed with his result, you had no idea how he'd gotten there, and that, and that is a problem for lower courts. But in his own terms, I think he lived in a highly honorable life and an honorable career. And if he and his family and, and what was inside him told him it was time to stop, you know, I think the man paid his dues. Okay, maybe just one last one. Uh, we've, we've spoken yeah. about ways in which his jurisprudence and his opinions might have been somewhat unpredictable. But as you reflect on the, the, his time on the bench now, almost 30 years, what are the sort of most consistent strains of it? Obviously, seem to to stand pretty rigidly for the idea of freedom of speech and freedom to exercise one's religion. He was obviously a, a champion, probably ahead of the time most thought there might be a champion of that strength for the, the rights of the LBGT community. Mm-hmm. What, what are, I guess, the the consistent strains that ran through his jurisprudence? Well, well, the jurisprudence that will last is in the First Amendment area. Yeah. Um, the court's current highly absolutist and broad view of speech rights was entirely engineered by Kennedy. He announced his where he was going. He announced an opinion in 1992, soon after he took the bench, he basically saying, I don't think government can limit 
protected speech, even for the most compelling of reasons. That was a new doctrine. Basically, if it is speech that is, you know, not something you can make criminal, then you can't limit it at all. And that was a minority view at that time. It has become the law. Um, it is it is very important. It was very important in the Janus decision um, that we saw uh, yesterday. And that strain of cases is not going anywhere. It has been embraced by the conservative legal movement. And whoever replaces Justice Kennedy will be a believer in that view of free speech. I think his religious freedom jurisprudence is also fairly durable. He, at, at a point where the court had, had seriously made a, a misstep after the case, the Employment Division versus Smith case, the peyote case, in which Justice Scalia convinced a majority to say that minority religions had no protection under the Constitution. Kennedy walked that back in a case called the Church of the Lukumi Babalui versus mm. Hialeah. He said that Smith decision is very narrow, and if there's any kind of discrimination against religion, um, then it doesn't apply. Minority religions are protected against discrimination. And let me show you how to find it. So he goes through a very detailed roadmap of all the ways that you can examine the record to find out whether there is disc being discrimination against minority religions going on. And that opinion has really set the court's free exercise jurisprudence, you know, to the extent that it can be on steady ground it's that opinion that did that, and that, that opinion is not going anywhere. Now, the LGBT rights decisions, you know, I don't think there's any prospect that any new nominee to the court will form a five-justice majority to reverse Obergefell and say that there is no right to same-sex marriage. I think same-sex marriage is, is established as a super, what Roberts would call a super precedent, but I do think there is great reluctance on the part of the, uh, of the conservatives and the conservative legal movement to allow the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans people to be further protected, either by statute or by the Constitution, or to push hard to ensure that states regard same-sex married couples as the equal of opposite-sex married couples. I think you're going to see some cases that would have come out the other way about such questions as adoption and hospital visitation and so forth, you are going to see those cases come out in a direction that will displease the advocates of LGBT equality. They would have come out differently under, under Justice Kennedy. So that part of his jurisprudence is liable, liable to, be, to be evanescent. And part of it is the reason, as a very wise opinion piece in today's New York Times points out part of that is Justice Kennedy's fault. He didn't like to be pinned down to legal theories. And so when he had one of these cases uh, involving uh, gay rights, he would write these soaring, and some of it is very beautiful, things about you know the human spirit and how we are all, we all have equal dignity and so forth. And, you know, law professors and practicing lawyers would say, yeah, okay, great, but, you know, where are the pages with the law that we can apply? Where are the pages with the tests? No, we've got, you know, what, what Scalia called the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. And so it is, it is very easy to limit those opinions to their facts because we say, 
you know, basically what you say is we don't know what Kennedy was talking about, but he didn't give us a test that decides this case, and we are conservative, and we're going to decide it this way. So uh, I think that is a, a, a kind of weak spot in his jurisprudence, and I think that his middle course, and he genuinely did steer a middle course on abortion rights, you know, I think that's over now. And I think that the drive to reverse Roe versus Wade is underway in earnest and that that precedent will be reversed in practice, if not in in name, you know, within five or 10 years. Right. If not expressly reversed the sort of death by 100 cuts. Yeah, just as, you know, just like saying this doesn't this isn't an undue burden. This isn't an undue burden until really the practical effect is going to be that abortion is unobtainable by uh, all but a few people in this country. Okay, well, certainly the the nature and the durability of his, uh, Justice Kennedy's legacy is yet to be discerned, but one thing is certain, he was a tremendously consequential and unique jurist, and um, appreciate you, uh, Gary Epps, from the University of Baltimore School of Law, being on the podcast to chat about his retirement. Thank you, I, I had a great time. joined now by Ilya Soman. He's a professor of law at George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. His writings appear frequently on the libertarian-leaning Bullock conspiracy law blog at reason.com. He's also the author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, as a lot of your work um, entails analyses of sort of the ebbs and flows of libertarian principles and constitutional law, um, your piece on Reason.com regarding Justice Kennedy's legacy takes the framing of looking at that legacy from a libertarian perspective. So we'll we'll do that here. I, um, as to that um, legacy in the libertarian perspective, you say that perhaps more than any other modern Supreme Court justice, he did perhaps the most good uh, from, from a libertarian point of, of view. One perhaps most prominent way that that is, is seen is through the string of several gay rights rulings that he sort of began and, and knitted a whole doctrine around of his own making. Can you describe uh, that that part of his, his legacy? So I think it's overstating things a little bit to suggest it was purely of his own making, uh, but he did write all four of the major Supreme Court opinions on gay and lesbian rights over the last 25 years, uh, and he voted in favor of those rights each time, and that resulted in major gains for both the liberty and equality for gays and lesbians. In Lawrence versus Texas, he wrote the Supreme Court's opinion striking down anti-sodomy laws, uh, which at that point still existed, I think, in 13 states. And, uh, of course, he wrote the same-sex marriage opinion in Obergefell, which struck down laws banning same-sex marriage. I'm not a big fan of uh, a good deal of the reasoning in these opinions, but I think they came out the right way, and they did result in great progress for liberty and equality. It would be a mistake to say that he was solely responsible. There was a much broader social context involved, uh, but I think if not for his efforts, these developments would have, might have taken significantly longer to occur. Yeah, as you say, that that's one point that does seem to come up frequently, that the, the reasoning, and, and at the time, that the reasoning that he used in some of those decisions, take uh, the Obergefell same-sex marriage ruling, was a bit kind of fuzzy. It wasn't maybe a particularly clean and clear enunciation of a, a doctrine that might be particularly durable or applicable in, in cases outside of, of that one. Is that 
um, a concern that you have regarding that piece of his legacy? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's very difficult to tell what the reasoning of that opinion actually is. And it's not even easy to tell whether it deals with the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment or the due process clause or some combination of the two or what the limiting principle is. I think that's a shame, both because it makes the precedent that sets somewhat unclear and because in many people's eyes, it weakens the legitimacy of the decision. Uh, and I believe that there were uh, ways to craft that decision much better. There are several possible alternatives, but the one that I advocated in a in amicus brief I co-authored with Andy Koppelman, another legal scholar, is that we suggested that uh, what the Supreme Court should simply do is rule that laws that forbid same-sex marriage uh, discriminate on the basis of sex, just like laws that discriminate, uh, laws that forbid interracial marriage discriminate on the basis of race. One kind of law says who you're married, who you can marry depends on your race. Another says who you can marry depends on your, uh, your sex. Uh, and the Supreme Court has long held that, uh, laws that discriminate on the basis of sex should be subject to a high level of scrutiny, uh, that these sorts of laws almost certainly couldn't pass. So that was one, uh, I think, much better way to resolve the case. There are some other possibilities as well. Okay, I'm moving to another strain of Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence, a very jealously guarded liberty interest that he consistently protected is the the freedom of speech that put him on kind of different sides of the political center in, in different cases, like, for instance, a flag-burning case and then um, cases involving campaign finance. Um, tell me a bit, a bit, a bit about his, his free speech jurisprudence. Kennedy may well be the most speech-protective justice in the entire history of the Supreme Court. Uh, he struck down both uh, speech restrictions of a kind that people on the left like, such as campaign finance regulations, uh, and also forced disclosure requirements of various kinds, uh, like we just recently saw in the abortion uh, or, or in the abortion clinic cases this term. And he also struck down speech restrictions to people on the right, like such as anti-flag burning laws, uh, laws that restrict sexually explicit speech, and quite a few others. I think perhaps more than any other Supreme Court justice, at least in modern times and over the last several decades, Kennedy understood that the first seminar is broadly worded. It covers speech of all types, and it takes a dim view of a variety of different uh, government motives for censorship and also for compelling speech. Kennedy deserves a lot of credit for that. And another method or another type of liberty interest being protected, you also write that he was strictly and, and, and closely watched encroachments of, of federal power over not just states, but also individuals. I think you, you cite a, a lesser known case bond versus the United States that stands for uh, an important proposition regarding the judicial enforcement of limits on, on national government power. Yeah. So with one important exception that we can talk about uh, later, perhaps, Kennedy was very strong in enforcing constitutional limits on the scope of federal government power relative to state and local governments. He was very consistent on that in cases involving federal spending, uh, in cases involving the Commerce Clause and the power to regulate interstate commerce, and 
in other areas as well. In Bond, the case that you mentioned, which in itself is not a well-known case, he managed to get the Supreme Court to unanimously agree on the very important proposition, the limiting federal power, uh, that enforcement of that is not just a matter of protecting states, but also a matter of protecting individuals, because often individual citizens benefit from constraints on federal government power, because even though states often can also be oppressive or abusive, uh, a state uh, policy that does that harms fewer people than a similar federal policy. And in the case of the states, uh, people can vote with their feet to escape the policy if things get too bad. And when Kennedy enunciated that very well, in, in his opinion, that made certain that individuals and not just state governments uh, can raise certain types of constitutional federalism claims. It's an interesting piece of his jurisprudence because, or interesting piece of his legacy, because in, in much the same way as Justice Kennedy would, from one case to another, perhaps you know, benefit parties on either side of, of the political divide, that's the sort of you know, legal theory and legal doctrine that's um, become sort of more relevant uh, maybe now than it was before to to parties that do bring maybe more left leaning causes. Republican president and and Congress are are in office. The idea that uh, judicial constraint of, of national power seems to have a bit more salience than perhaps it might have when Justice Kennedy voted say against uh, the Affordable Care Act a, a few years ago. Yeah. So for a long time, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but for a long time we had this division where conservatives and libertarians favored significant judicial enforcement of limits on federal government power, whereas liberals were opposed to nearly all such limits or certainly nearly all judicial enforcement of them. Over the last few years, that has begun to break down for a number of reasons, but one obvious reason, of course, is the behavior of the Trump administration and its conflicts with various blue states, blue local governments. For example, in the various legal cases involving sanctuary cities, sanctuary cities are using many of the same documents doctrines pioneered by Kennedy and other right-of-center Supreme Court justices to resist Trump, and they're actually winning many of those cases. Apropos of that, one case that you do mention as, as, as one that you feel Kennedy maybe got, got wrong, or a case whose um, ruling is, is less favorable towards the, the libertarian perspective is the, the, the travel ban decision from this past week reviewing um, a proclamation yeah. of, of the president. I guess why, in your view, is is that ruling problematic? And do you kind of view it as in disharmony with his, his other rulings that you say were largely supportive of these liberty interests? Yes. Sadly, Kennedy's very last published opinion was the one in the travel ban case, and it was one of his worst. Uh, Kennedy and other cases including in Masterpiece Cake Shop just a few weeks ago, was very careful to combat uh, religious prejudice when government officials were motivated by it, including even in cases where on its face the policy the government officials were enforcing was neutral, but the evidence showed that they were in fact motivated by bias. And of course, in the case of travel ban, that ban arose from uh, Donald Trump's repeated campaign statements that he wanted to do a Muslim ban, even when later he switched to a so-called territorial 
policy focused on Muslim-majority nations. He repeatedly said that it was basically the same thing, and even that the new policy was an extension or an expansion of the previous one. So the biased motive here was extremely obvious, frankly, more obvious and more blatant than in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. But Kennedy nonetheless voted to uphold the travel ban, though he did write this somewhat hand-wringing concurring opinion. I think the reason why he did that is that he bought into the double standard that immigration policy is not subject to the same level of constitutional constraint as other government policies are. And I think there's just nothing in the Constitution which supports that, at least not when it comes to the First Amendment and its restrictions on discrimination on the basis of religion. So I think this case uh, is a black mark on Kennedy's record. There was an interesting concurrence, it, it seemed to, to signal or make certain folks think that it was a indication of his announcement the, the next day that he was hang, hanging it up. Yeah, perhaps. In that concurrence, he did say that it may be that certain uh, policies motivated by bias against religion might still be unconstitutional in an immigration context, and he urged officials to respect the Constitution even in cases where judicial review is not available. But I think in this case, judicial review was and should have been available. And the whole reason why we have a First Amendment and the rest of the Bill of Rights is because we often can't trust government officials to be on the up and up. And Kennedy understood that in most other contexts. He sort of fell down on the job in this instance. Maybe just one last one, if you can care to opine uh, a forward-looking one. You know, politically liberal observers are, are are fairly aghast at the prospect of a court without Justice Kennedy and one with a, a second Trump appointee. I suppose from a libertarian perspective, do you think the court, w- w- what is the view from, from those quarters in terms of a, a justice appointed by the president or replacing Justice Kennedy? So different libertarians probably have different views. In my opinion, it depends in part on who he appoints. But as a general rule, I think it is likely he will appoint someone that libertarians will like on some kinds of issues, issues where libertarians and conservatives tend to agree. But we will be less happy on a range of other types of issues, including, of course, issues related to immigration, uh, although Kennedy wasn't so great there either, and also some issues related to rights of criminal defendants, in some cases the rights of unpopular minorities and the like. So one of the downsides of being a libertarian is that both liberal and and conservative Supreme Court justices often have a tendency to do things that we're not fans of. (laughs) Sure. Well, I will have to wait and see, but uh, Ilya Soman, professor of law at George Mason University, really appreciate you being on the podcast to uh, discuss this, all these issues. Thank you. Thank you so much. John Colhane is a distinguished professor of law, Delaware Law School at Widener University. He's also a contributor to Slate Magazine and the author of, among other works, The Same-Sex Legal Kit for Dummies. Professor Colhane, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So one of the, the, more, the more salient considerations in the wake of Justice Anthony Kennedy's retirement, a question people are wondering about is just how durable his legacy will be, I guess, what it is, and then how durable it will be. Uh, there's a range of opinions on that score. You did not mince words in your contribution to a Politico symposium earlier in the week. You said that his legacy might well turn to dust. What I, I did say that. Yeah. <laughs> what What do you mean? What do you mean by that? And how how might that happen? 
Well, so I think there are a couple of areas for which he's known as being sort of a progressive. And the most obvious of those is in the area of LGBT rights. Uh, as many of your listeners will know, he authored all four of the Supreme Court's major uh, decisions in that area. And it's not inconceivable to me that the biggest accomplishment, which was saying that same-sex couples had a constitutional right to marry just three years ago, that that could be endangered. Either it could be overruled uh, directly, which I think would surprise some people to hear, but after all, it was a 5-4 decision with the uh, dissenting justices expressing really scorn for the, the majority opinion. And this included Justice Roberts, who uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who said that uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion had nothing to do with the Constitution. So when you see words that are that strongly written, it doesn't take much imagination to think that the court uh, might overrule itself if they get a fifth justice who's who's more in the Gorsuch line than in the Kennedy line. You know, in California, in 2008, the state Supreme Court uh, decided that same-sex couples had a right to marry, and then Proposition 8 took that away, at least for a time. So it's not unprecedented, although it creates sort of a messy situation, it's not unprecedented for uh, that kind of thing to happen. So I think that's that would be the most sort of devastating and obvious thing that could happen. Short of that, what might happen is kind of an eating away at the edges and allowing a lot more discretion in terms of people opting out of laws that require them to provide services to LGBT people. We saw sort of a little bit of that in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, although Justice Kennedy sort of punted on that one by saying that there was religious animus uh, that the Civil Rights Commission showed against the, the beggar and just sort of, you know, sort of shoved the case aside on that basis. But I think with a conservative Supreme Court, you'll get these uh, decisions that kind of weight the balance in favor of businesses that don't want to serve uh, members of the LGBT community. You might even see uh, taking a cue from a state like Texas, which said, well, just because same-sex couples can marry doesn't necessarily mean they have all the uh, same right to benefits that um, opposite-sex couples enjoy. So it can be eaten away at and, uh, you know, in various different ways. And, of course, the other uh, main issue that has everyone galvanized, of course, is abortion, uh, women's reproductive rights. Uh, Kennedy, as is well known, provided the fifth vote for uh, retaining Roe against Wade in the Casey decision back in 1992. And it's fair to say that he gave the states a lot of discretion in uh, the kinds of abortion regulations that could be advanced. But he was at least steadfast in the principle that uh, if there was an undue burden on the woman's right to make that decision, that the law would be thrown out. And just a couple of years ago, some Texas laws were thrown out that require changing clinics in ways that were really designed to force them to close down, uh, required doctors to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. And Kennedy joined a 5-4 majority there saying, well, no, uh, really, these are going to uh, cut uh, way down on women's rights to obtain an abortion. So without Kennedy on the court, you're either going to get a quick reversal of, of, of Casey or what I think is maybe slightly more likely is, again, you'll get this sort of chipping away. And certainly states, when they see who the fifth justice is, will feel very emboldened 
to enact uh, much more stringent uh, anti-abortion laws. And then, you know, those laws will probably be upheld by the Supreme Court, even if they don't actually overrule Casey. So I think those are uh, two big issues in which uh, Justice Kennedy's legacy is, is really going to be reduced to nothing pretty quickly. And what was concerning to me is that he sort of waved goodbye or sort of uh, left the court with a shrug, you know, in the last decision in which he wrote a concurrence, which was the travel ban case. He said, well, you know, there are some uh, some problems potentially with the travel ban, but the Supreme Court's not in a position to fix everything. And we just hope the executive restrains himself is basically what he said. And then he was gone. And I think a lot of people uh, would say his last term, in which he sided 100% with the more conservatives, and the way he left the court in this, you know, desultory fashion uh, suggests that he kind of knew what was coming and, and really doesn't seem to care. And, and it, it, it came as a little bit of a surprise and a big disappointment to someone who had followed his career, you know, since he took the bench many years ago. Sort of all maybe against our, our, our best attempts are kind of subjects to recency bias. So is this last term, as you describe it, with really no archetypal, you know, ter- classic, strong Kennedy 5-4 opinion seems to, in at the moment, be a, a bit of a tarnish on the legacy that will sustain you. If you could picture yeah. that legacy going forward, how, how much do you think that, that this past term will affect it or will it stand the 30-year legacy of sort of... Yeah, you know, it's hard to say in in the immediate aftermath of his departure. I mean, technically he hasn't even departed yet until right uh, July 31st, I think. Maybe it's the end of June, but uh, technically he's still on the court. You know, I guess, you know, what I would say, and and, uh, there was a lot of back and forth on Twitter about this, you know, people saying, well, this is terrible. Other people saying, "Eh, who who needs him? He didn't side with the uh, progressives on a single decision uh, this past term. But if you take the long view... Um, you know, it's because of Justice Kennedy that we still do have affirmative action, although it's been, although it's been uh, compromised, I think, and and watered down. We, you know, we still do have Casey, and and we have very progressive decisions on gay rights. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that that uh, in his last term, he did tarnish his legacy, and. And his concurring opinion, not only in the travel ban case, but in a in another case that threw out the uh, California law that required the posting of notices about where women could obtain abortion services at these clinics that really were, you know, designed to kind of, you know, to oversimplify, to sort of supply other services and talk women out of abortions. You know, the court there uh, really kind of, I, I thought it was very disingenuous in its reading of Casey and said, well, you can't compel speech like this. Of course, in Casey, the court said it was it was okay for the state to, you know, give women information that maybe they didn't want. But in this case, the court sort of flipped. And Kennedy wrote this very... I thought borderline nasty concurrence where he said, well, California said it's forward thinking in in providing women with this information. And he said it's not forward thinking basically to compel their speech. And, you know, so I think that kind of rhetoric, I don't know if he was angry or or what was going on there at the end. But, you know, I think if those kinds of statements and those concurrences are kind of weaponized by 
uh, future justices in cutting back further on the rights that Kennedy had championed, then I think his legacy will be, you know, irreparably tarnished. It seems maybe fair to say that this term was a just a reminder for those that could kind of easily forget, based on some of his jurisprudence, that Justice Kennedy was a you know, moderate conservative, but not uh, not a moderate. Uh, full that's stop. right. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think the the gay rights decisions left people with the view that he was a moderate. But really, I was recently reminded that when I think uh, former Judge Posner did this analysis based on all of the uh, decisions about who the most conservative uh, justices were over the, I don't know, the past 50 years or something, maybe longer, Kennedy was in the top 10 most conservative. It's just that this is an extremely conservative bench, so he ends up looking moderate. And, you know, sure, he wasn't as conservative as Alito Thomas Gorsuch and probably slightly to the left of uh, Chief Justice Roberts, but that doesn't make him a moderate. It makes him, uh, yeah, I think moderate conservative is, is uh, you know, a good way to put it. But with him, you really have to look at the specific issues because he definitely had his pet projects and sort of pet issues. And uh, gay rights was one. And, you know, in abortion, he he provided the fifth vote uh, way back in 1992 for uh, Casey. And when the thought had been that the Supreme Court was about to you know, totally overrule Roe versus Wade. So there were some and, of course, affirmative action just a couple of years ago, maybe even last year. So so. There were these issues in which he kind of at least steered the court slightly back to the middle. And I guess the one other issue that is a big disappointment from the past uh, term was political gerrymandering situation where he had said years ago that, you know, we should be concerned about political gerrymandering, but there's no tool in our toolbox to really solve it. But if somebody could come up with one to really sort of show this had been political and to provide some kind of a remedy that makes sense, we should consider it. And it looked as though, you know, folks had taken that to heart in a couple of the gerrymandering cases. And the court ended up just punting on those and saying that people that were bringing them didn't have standing. And of course, you know, Kennedy could have stopped that and, and basically provided a fifth vote for, you know, deciding that the uh, uh, gerrymanders were uh, too political and that a solution could have been found. But now, of course, once another justice replaces him, I think that window that had been cracked open uh, really will slam shut. So I think that's a case where in the years to come, when people kind of excavate his decisions and look at where they thought he was moving, uh, the fact that he just, you know, kicked those cases away, uh, I think will stand as a big disappointment. Maybe just one one last one. on As, sure. to, as to the the first line of cases that we spoke about, the line of gay rights cases, in particular Obergefell from a few terms ago. You know, yeah. in, in sort of surveying the conventional wisdom, it seems like the prevailing opinion is that Obergefell and, and that line of cases is, is relatively safe. The right to same-sex marriage is relatively safe, seems to be the prevailing opinion. But as you say, there were four pretty fervent defense dissents in that case. And yeah. you have to imagine the new justice would be to the right of Chief Justice Roberts. So I guess, how, what do you think explains that level of calm or just that, that prevailing opinion that maybe that particular case is just now settled and it wouldn't be revisited by a, a new court? Well, I think because people are looking at the consequences of doing something like that. I mean, in California, we have a sort of an example of 
of the mess that was created. And even though, you know, same-sex marriages had been allowed for only a few months before Prop 8 was put into place, the court had to deal with the issue of what about the people that were married in the whatever it was, five months between when the court decided they could marry and when Prop 8 came down. And the court said, well, those marriages still exist, but no one else can get married. And it was seen as, you know, sort of a huge body blow. And I think people, it's partly psychological. I mean, I think people are just unwilling to imagine that a Supreme Court, whatever the, the division uh, that existed at the time a right was extended, would ever cut back on it. And I would say that usually I would agree with that. And I think if I were betting, I would say maybe it's more slightly more than 50% likely that the uh, decision will stand. But but given the kind of the vitriol and the the statements about how the the, the uh, decision far exceeded the court's you know kind of a power a legitimate power under the constitution even by justice roberts who really is not usually given uh, to rhetoric like that uh makes me think that with another you know justice in the gorsuch uh perhaps a Lido model, that that decision would be overturned. You know, and then we'll, we'll just have to see. I mean, there was a decision from last term, or maybe it was 2016, where there was a question about, uh, you know, uh, naming uh, same-sex couples on official mm-hmm. uh, vital records. And, you know, seven of the justices said, well, of course you have to do that because they can marry. But there were two justices that said, no, this is a separate issue and and we should, you know, look at it askance, including Justice Gorsuch. So I think the, you know, the, the camel's nose is under the tent. And if you get somebody in the radical conservative mode, they might be inclined to, you know, try to push back. It would be difficult. I mean, who has standing, right, to sort of, you know, do this? But I suppose what could happen is a state could try to ban same-sex marriage, right? And then a, and then some couple could challenge that, and then we would be back before the Supreme Court. So, I, you know, it's – I guess everything is up in the air, is what I would say, all progressive decisions. And one area that we haven't discussed that, that maybe is worth – you know, just a brief mention is the court's willingness to kind of turn the First Amendment and freedom of speech and expression into kind of a weapon that people who disagree with, you know, sort of economic regulations are able to, you know, deploy to their advantage. And I think if that becomes sort of ensconced as a jurisprudential approach, we would be moving back toward the Lochner era where Supreme Court had said, hey, businesses have a substantive due process right to, you know, sort of avoid these uh, regulations. But we would be doing it not through substantive due process, but through this kind of, you know, retooled, you know, sort of, I guess, hyperactive First Amendment. And that that's a concern. And Kennedy was on board with that stuff. And you already, I think, have five justices for it. But if you have someone more conservative, I think you'll start to see that sort of sort of pick up. And if you read Justice Kagan's dissent in the uh, public unions case from a few days ago, she kind of sounds the alarm about that. So lots of things are in play, um, some of which are uh, directly attributable to Kennedy's departure and others of which 
might accelerate given that you could still imagine Kennedy would be some kind of a break on the most extreme kind of manifestations of that tendency to use the First Amendment. So, you know, it's... Yeah. We're in for interesting times, I would say. Right. Yeah, certainly plenty of plenty of open questions. Uh, no real answer to yeah. us yet, but I appreciate you helping us unpack a few of them. Uh, Professor John Colhane from Delaware Law School at Widener University. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Joined now by Jonathan Adler. He's a professor of law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. He's the director of the school's Center for Business Law and Regulation. He's a regular public conspiracy contributor as well and has written, among other books, Business and the Roberts Court. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Okay, so yesterday you wrote a piece on the Volk conspiracy titled Say Goodbye to the Kennedy Court. So we can maybe start there and start sort of broadly. This court... You know, the, the court of Chief Justice Roberts was regarded, I think, fairly so as the, the Kennedy court these past at least 10 or 12 years since the retirement of Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, now it will be the, the Roberts court. As, as a broad matter, do you think a justice being added most likely to the right of the Chief Justice, leaving him as the, as the median justice, would have any sort of influence on the way he would approach cases going forward, noting that he's maybe you know, more so than that other justice is very mindful of the institutional kind of legitimacy of the court. Do you think um, that's that him being the median justice will have some sort of impact on his jurisprudence? Well, I think that it will change some of the calculations the chief justice makes as he tries to guide the court uh, in line with his views of how the court should operate. Uh, the chief justice uh, is best described as something of a judicial minimalist. Uh, he likes the court to issue narrow rulings that attract uh, broad, broad consensus. He doesn't like 5-4 decisions. He really doesn't like uh, cases where you don't even have a majority and, and the justices splinter all over the place. Uh, and has generally tried to find ways to have the court decide as little as possible in a given case and uh, and to do so with you know six, seven, eight justices, perhaps a unanimous court. And as the personnel changes, the calculations that the chief will make about how to achieve those sorts of results uh, will certainly change, and how he uses his power to sign the majority opinion in cases that he's in the majority uh, will change somewhat uh, as well. But I think that you know his general outlook uh, is likely to remain the same, and you know, he'll be trying to achieve the same things in terms of the way the court operates. Um, he will just be dealing with, you know, a different mix of people, and uh, you know, whoever replaces Justice Kennedy is unlikely to have the same, shall we say, idiosyncratic uh, jurisprudence that that Justice Kennedy uh, had over his time on the court. Yeah, that does seem to be one safe assumption about the future nominee, which of course remains uh, uncertain at, at this time. Um, as to a few more specific areas of law that that could see a slight change in course with a new court. Um, certainly the, the first one that tends to come to people's minds over these past couple of days is in the area of uh, reproductive rights, the right to abortion. In your view, you know, Justice Kennedy was the fifth vote in Planned Parenthood v. Casey to sort of sustain the constitutional right to abortion, I think, to slightly change it in that, that ruling. But um, with him departed, 
I guess what are your thoughts on, on the the range of opinions and, and maybe just the likelihood of the way that particular doctrine will evolve going forward? Well, it's it's pretty clear that there are at least two, uh, probably more uh, justices on the court that uh, think Roe was wrong and uh, would like to get rid of it. Uh, Justice Thomas has made uh, clear that that's his view. Uh, I think we're pretty confident that that's uh, Justice Alito's view. The Chief Justice has been open to narrowing the abortion right, um, but has not indicated his uh, willingness to overturn that precedent. You know, a new justice is unlikely uh, to believe that Roe was correct as an original matter. The question will be uh, the extent to which uh, that justice feels constrained by precedent, uh, as well as you know, what sorts of cases come before the court. I think uh, it's much more likely that uh, we see decisions that maybe take a narrow view of Casey certainly narrower than the Supreme Court's decision a year or so ago in the whole women's health case out of Texas. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. that result in the near term is is more likely than uh, directly overturning it. And uh, I certainly think that the Chief Justice, again, in the near term, would be reluctant to embrace overturning Roe outright. Sure. I mean, just an example of sort of a a more narrow type of case or a uh, an opportunity for the court to weigh in in a way that wouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade outright. There was, I believe, a, a law passed in, in Iowa banning abortions once a, a fetal heartbeat can be detected, something you know, around six weeks or so. I believe a stay was put in against that law, but that it does seem to be the sort of situation that folks might mention as a case where a, a more rightward leaning court could define something like that as not an undue burden and so not need to really reach whether or not Roe v. Wade is, you know, still needing to be overturned or upheld? Well, possibly. I mean, I think a lot, in a case like that, a lot would would depend on whether the law in question uh, makes exceptions for the health of the mother, and if so, what sort of showing needs to be made in those sorts of circumstances. But certainly uh, laws that require ultrasounds before an abortion or laws that perhaps uh, restrict certain types of procedures, laws that require prescriptions for certain sort of medications that are capable of inducing abortions. I think uh, those sorts of laws are probably uh, going to be some of the initial types of cases we see, and and we might also see a case uh, arising over uh, limitations on uh, funding of Planned Parenthood and and organizations that provide abortion services. Several states uh, have uh, adopted laws to that effect, and there's one case out of Ohio that the Sixth Circuit will be hearing on Bonk later this year, uh, and that could certainly be a candidate for certiorari. One sort of area of the law that's a bit harder to pin down as ideologically more persuasive to one side or the other is the idea of of states' rights. People on either side of the political divide tend to think states should have kind of more rights depending on what exactly they're, they're trying to do, either regulate guns or tightly regulate abortions. But in that regard, do you have any thoughts as, I know Justice Kennedy was obviously a very consistent upholder of, of the liberty interests of both people and, and states as against the national government. Do you have any thoughts on how sort of the, the broad states' rights type area of the law would de- develop? Well, I think this past term, the the decision involving sports betting, um, Murphy versus NCAA, uh, really laid down a marker in terms of 
limiting the federal government's ability to force states to cooperate in federal regulatory schemes. The so-called anti-commandeering principle that the court reaffirmed in that decision in the past had divided the court. In a case called New York, the court had split 6-3. In a case called Prince, the court had split a 5-4. In this case, while there were dissenters, the, the dissenting opinion did not take issue with the the anti-commandeering rule. It rather took issue with the remedy the court ordered. Now, I think that as a consequence, going forward, uh, we are likely to see uh, somewhat less ideological division on the court when it comes to federalism issues. Uh, I expect we'll still see ideological division uh, politically, uh, but I think that we're likely to see more unanimity on the basic idea that our uh, federal constitutional structure uh, affords states uh, greater leeway or, or a fair amount of leeway in deciding how to resolve certain types of policy questions. Okay, yeah, there, there are a couple of doctrine that tended to seem like they got Justice Kennedy's attention, though the court hadn't acted on them very affirmatively during his tenure, one of them being solitary confinement. I think he mentioned in a case from 2015 that he was concerned that the court hadn't fully grappled with the Eighth Amendment implications of of prolonged solitary confinement. He also mentioned uh, multiple times over his tenure his concern over extreme partisan gerrymandering. Of course, he had a a chance to take that one up this term and and did not. Are those the sorts of issues that you think kind of go on the shelf now for a while? It's possible. I mean, I think uh, I don't know of any potential replacements for uh, Justice Kennedy that have already uh, raised those issues. But, uh, you know, a justice's sensitivity to some of these sorts of issues sometimes develops while a justice is on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few lower court judges that confront the full range of, of legal questions that the Supreme Court does, and certainly uh, they don't face that full range of questions with the same degree of leeway that the Supreme Court does. And so a lot, you know, new justices come to the court not always having had to think through certain questions to the same degree, or, you know, there there will be questions that they never had the opportunity to even consider that they can begin to consider. So, so I, I don't expect any potential replacement to pick up on those issues uh, right away, but that doesn't mean you won't see either Justice Kennedy's replacement or other justices start to raise these concerns in the years ahead. Okay, um, one, one doctrinal development that, that folks have mentioned recently, it's less tied, I suppose, to the departure of Justice Kennedy. It's one that is implicated in the recent Janus decision, the public sector union case. One, one certain folks posit the idea that the First Amendment can increasingly be used, using that opinion as kind of a springing board, as a, as a broader deregulatory tool. Um, maybe sort of with some shades of the Lochner approach. Obviously, the the Janus case was a pretty specific issue that didn't get into broad deregulatory powers of using the First Amendment. But what's your thought on folks describing the doctrinal development towards that turn? Uh, Yeah, I I don't find that that the characterization of the court's increased protection of commercial speech or protection against compelled speech as some kind of new... Uh, Lochnerism uh, to be very persuasive. I think that those sorts of critiques uh, don't look carefully and closely enough at the contours of what the court has done in these various cases. Um, as as the court noted in a decision from uh, not this past term but the term before, involving regulation of 
differences between credit card and cash payments. What what raises First Amendment issues is not government regulation, but government regulation that really keys on or focuses on speech. And as the court noted in that, in that case, the government was absolutely free to engage in the sort of price regulation it wanted to engage in. The only thing it couldn't do without, in, without triggering First Amendment scrutiny is limit the way retailers talk about the prices. That is to say, retailers could have different prices for credit cards and cash, but to tell retailers that you're allowed to describe something as a discount but not the reverse as a surcharge is purely a regulation of the speech, uh, and that would, would trigger First Amendment scrutiny. That sort of line is easy for legislatures to get around uh, if what they're really trying to do is regulate economic conduct. And, and so I don't, I don't think that these rulings, whether we're talking about Janice, whether we're talking about the uh, compelled speech for a crisis pregnancy centers uh, case that the court handed down at the end of the term, I don't, I don't think they, they spell the end of government-mandated disclosure requirements or labeling requirements. Uh, I don't think they will lead to some broader deregulatory push. They will just require regulatory agencies and, and governments generally to be sure that their regulatory measures are targeting the conduct that is the government's concern instead of uh, taking shortcuts by just regulating speech. Okay, um, maybe the, the the decisive swing vote that Justice Kennedy will be most known for is his vote in the Obergefell case from October term four, uh, 2014. Um, with him off the court uh, and Chief Justice Roberts as the, the media and justice, he dissented, of course, in that opinion. Do you feel that that, that case guaranteeing the right to marry to same-sex couples is, uh, is in any peril? No, I don't. I think that the reliance interests uh, in uh, Obergefell or, or in the existence and availability of same-sex marriage throughout the country are quite strong. I would be uh, very surprised uh, if uh, that decision were, ch- were directly challenged in the Supreme Court. That is, you know, surprised this, if the Supreme Court took a case directly challenging it, and even more surprised uh, if if there was a serious effort to overturn it. Uh, millions of people around the country have organized their lives and affairs in reliance upon uh, the availability of same-sex marriage, and I can't see the court, and especially the Chief Justice, uh, disrupting uh, those reliance interests. If you look at the Chief Justice's dissent in uh, the Wayfair case, I think it, it indicates that, that he is particularly concerned about uh, maintaining the status quo and stability in those areas of law where people have substantial reliance interests, and I think uh, in, in the Obergefell results and the availability of same-sex marriage is certainly one of those areas. Okay, maybe a, a, a broader question. The parties that, that bring lawsuits that they, they anticipate potentially reaching the Supreme Court do so you know, often strategically, and I've heard folks say that you know, parties perhaps have held on to cases during the, the time the court has been constituted in its present structure. What are the sorts of cases that now parties think are, are, are better to bring? Obviously, it's hard to know exactly without knowing who the next justice will be, but what are the sorts of cases that might now be brought now that Anthony Kennedy is not uh, the potential justice that could yeah, sway I, the other way? I think that uh, you know, it really depends on, on uh, who his replacement is and on uh, what, uh, uh, you know, what areas of law that new justice is particularly interested in. I mean, certainly there is interest uh, in many quarters to try and encourage the court to reevaluate certain areas of administrative law 
and to uh, reevaluate certain areas of law relating to uh, takings and uh, government regulation of private property. Uh, and Justice Kennedy was was somewhat inconsistent in in those areas, or 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 more moderate in those areas than than some of the other justices. You know, until we know who his replacement is, it's hard to know whether or not major opportunities will will open in those areas. But it's certainly true that in a lot of areas where the court um, has been closely divided, and especially in those areas where the court doesn't always uh, divide on along neat ideological lines, the, new, uh, there, the existence of a new justice or having a, a new member of the court uh, will create uh, some new opportunities and make certain areas of law more salient than they have been in recent years. Okay, then Then last one, as to just who that next justice might be, there seems to be um, some consensus gathering around a, a couple of candidates like District or uh, Circuit Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett recently uh, confirmed to the Seventh Circuit. Do, do you have thoughts on who you think uh, are potential uh, likely candidates? I mean, there's a list of five that, that has been circulating that is certainly my understanding uh, that these are the five that the White House is, is at least initially focusing on. Uh, that's Thomas Hardiman of the Third Circuit, who uh, had been considered for the last vacancy. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who's a judge on the Seventh Circuit, who had been a professor at Notre Dame. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh of the D.C. Circuit and Ray Kettledge of the Sixth Circuit, both of whom were Kennedy clerks. Uh, and then Amul Thapar, who's a judge on the Sixth Circuit uh, and um, who's very close with uh, Senate Majority Leader and had been actually President Trump's first lower court uh, nomination. And I guess I should add, if, if he were nominated, he would be the first uh, Asian-American on the Supreme Court. You know, those five are, were all on uh, Trump's list of, of potential nominees. They all, uh, in general terms, you know, fit the, the mold of what the president said he wanted in terms of a, a judge who's an originalist and textualist. I think, you know, which of those five the, the administration selects will in part be a function of uh, their assessment of whether or not they need to worry about holding all the Republican senators, uh, given that they don't really have many votes to spare, as well as perhaps you know, which issues they want to emphasize. You know, different, different judges have different backgrounds, uh, different courts have different, different types of, uh, attract different types of cases, and so you know, the judges' records won't line up. Just to give one example, Brett Kavanaugh, because he's on the D.C. Circuit, has dealt with a lot of administrative law cases. So insofar as the, the White House is thinking about influencing administrative law, they know a lot more about uh, Judge Kavanaugh's record in that area than the other judges. Some of the other judges, like maybe Judge Tapar or Judge Hardiman, have more well-established records in areas related to criminal law. And so it, it in part depends on, on what the White House decides they really want to emphasize or, uh, in, in this pick. But, but I think all five are, are people that I would think uh, would be confirmed uh, if nominated. Okay, obviously uh, hard to, to know for certain who, who the next pick will be, but it seems very likely will be an interesting uh, next few months here. And we'll leave it there. Professor yeah. Jonathan Adler uh, from Case Western Reserve School of Law. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Finally, we're joined by Joshua Matz. He's of counsel with Gupta Wessler in Washington, D.C. He's also the publisher of the Take Care Law blog, focused on the boundaries of executive branch power. So he formerly clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy during October term 2014. Joshua, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. 
Okay, so you read a piece for the Washington Post yesterday, a fairly foreboding one entitled The Supreme Court Will Now Fall to Chaos after Anthony Kennedy's retirement announcement yesterday. Uh, before touching on, on the, the central theme of that article, I just want to ask you uh, just a question about your time serving with and for Justice Kennedy as a law clerk. You know, in that position, you get a chance better than most all court watchers to, to get to know sort of more personally these justices that, that most of us just view from an outside perspective. I guess what uh, either personal or judicial qualities do you think kind of are most essentially Justice Kennedy asked what, what ones you recall the most from your time there? You know, it's an extraordinary privilege to clerk at the Supreme Court at all for any justice. Uh, and I thought, you know, I felt particularly privileged by the opportunity to work for Justice Kennedy. You know, he's a profoundly decent man. He's incredibly kind and respectful. He's a great boss. He's, you know, he's, you know, he's demanding. He, get, he wants to get the cases right. He thinks very deeply about the issues before him. Uh, but it's a great chambers in which to work. And, you know, one of the things that most struck me while I was there is that this was a man who in many cases knew uh, that his vote might well tip the balance in terms of, you know, what the Constitution would mean on issues that matter a lot to a lot of people. And he wasn't cowed by that power. I mean, this was someone who was willing to exercise the judicial power in an occasionally muscular way. Uh, but he was someone who thought very deeply about it, who seemed uniquely capable of genuinely feeling and appreciating the claims and arguments on both sides of an issue, and who really struggled to ensure that there was an overall balance to the work of the court and to the meaning of the Constitution so that it could make our democracy work, uh, even as the court played a vital role in protecting individual dignity uh, and individual rights. I mean, he, he did always seem to be a person fairly uniquely shaped to, to fill the role that he's filled for the last 10 years or so post uh, Justice O'Connor's retirement as the, the principal swing justice here in, in, in the court. I guess maybe that leads to the thesis in your article as to why his retirement, will you say now, lead to chaos, you know, why does this, his departure, as opposed to previous ones, make you so worried about the, the future of the, the Supreme Court? Well, I should start by saying I did not pick the title of my article, and I may not have picked that one. Okay. The Washington Post gave it the title, you know, Supreme Court will fall to chaos. My article was not saying it's going to, but that it might well, uh, if we're not careful, if the president and if the Senate are not careful about what happens next. Uh, this is just an extraordinarily fraught moment in American life. Tribalism and intolerance stalk the land. Uh, the White House is besieged with credible accusations of criminality and corruption. A lot of people are losing faith in, in the institutions of government and in democracy itself. And at a time like that, the Supreme Court is in some ways uniquely positioned uh, to either help revitalize or in some cases to demolish popular trust that the government can act for the greater good. And over the past few years, really the past decade or two, Justice Kennedy has been at the linchpin of an effort to keep the court on something of an even keel. And this is not to say that I always agree with his decisions. In some cases, I disagree profoundly. And it's not to say that everything he did uh, was best for the court as an institution at the expense of vindicating the Constitution. But it's to say that in interpreting the Constitution and carrying out his work as a judge, he understood that the court is, just, is not just a philosophy society. It's not just a debating club. It's a branch of government, you know, and its rulings matter. And the way in which it conducts itself and decides its cases will shape American faith in the constitutional system. Right now, with, you know, now that Justice Kennedy has left, there's a genuine possibility 
uh, that if he's replaced by someone exceptionally conservative, that half the nation will just walk away from the court, that they will look at it and see a branch of government where their arguments have lost before they're even made, where they believe that their voices are doomed to be heard nowhere except in dissent, uh, and who will conclude that the court can't properly speak for or vindicate the very core tenets of how they believe our constitutional system should work. And so I, I think the reason that the court is now in peril is, you know, the chief justice will, I am sure, try his best to hold the center, but he's a considerably more conservative judge than Justice Kennedy was. You know, he had a very occasional independent streak that we saw in, for example, the Obamacare cases. But when I say very occasional, I mean it. He is considerably more conservative than Justice Kennedy. And across the vast majority of issues that the vast majority of progressives care about, he will not be supporting their positions almost, you know, 98% of the time. And so, you know, if a very, very conservative judge is put in there and the chief justice becomes, as it were, the median justice on the court, it is not implausible to me that half the country will simply lose faith in the court as a branch of government that can even pretend to speak for them. Uh, And that would be an astonishingly dangerous and unfortunate development. And, you know, I know it's hard these days in this era of tribalism where I assume President Trump will seek to placate his base by appointing a stealth conservative who they will trumpet as a moderate, knowing full well that they will govern and and act as a judge, as a conservative. You know, it's hard in this moment to say that what we need is an open minded moderate who can help maintain balance at the court. But that is what we need. And I worry it's not what we're going to get. Uh, And if that happens, I really do worry about the role of the court in American life being challenged and contested on a scale that we haven't seen since the New Deal. It sounds like maybe the two most important potential variables here, as you you cite them, are one being the, the type of justice that could be nominated and confirmed, and then whether or not, how or in what ways the Chief Justice's jurisprudence might tack in a perhaps more centrist direction, which are Justice Kennedy has departed. Do you, do you think it sounds or like might maybe... Tack in a more conserv- or, or might tack in a more conservative direction. You know, I mean, while Justice Kennedy was there, it's not unimaginable that his very presence on the court, you know, pulled the chief to the center. Uh, and if the chief is in the driver's seat, there may well be areas of law where he's more than happy to move rightward at the helm of a new majority. Uh, and so I think you're right that the two variables that I had identified are, you know, who's the replacement and how does the chief justice respond? And but I would not just assume that the chief justice's response will be uniformly toward uh, the center. Then what, I guess, practically speaking, does does a court in peril or a court that is maybe viewed as just one inclined towards towards one particular outcome from the outset of, of cases of court you know that might come down one way or the other. I guess, what does that look like for you know, attorneys? You work on cases that get before the Supreme Court fairly often. How might approaches change for, for folks in, in, in those roles? What, I guess, what, what does it look like for both attorneys and just for people generally if the situation arises that you describe? Well, those are two very different questions. And what it looks like for attorneys, I I candidly think, is not very different. You know, obviously, you're pitching your arguments uh, at a different justice who you you hope will latch onto them and hear them. Briefs, you know, there's there there has been a long tradition now of what are called Kennedy briefs, where lawyers try to anticipate how best to speak to and move to Justice Kennedy. And, you know, obviously, now there will be new targets in which of, of whom lawyers are trying to persuade. But otherwise, I do think that the day-to-day work of being an attorney at the court will look largely the same, except that, you know, in the world that I'm imagining, which is the one that I think is likely to come to pass, 
progressives will be overwhelmingly on the defense. And it won't just be a matter of progressives losing cases they care about. I just think that there isn't a wide enough appreciation of how extraordinarily aggressive the the conservative agenda espoused by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, possibly joined by the chief, would be. You know, we're potentially talking about the invalidation of major federal agencies, the elimination of significant civil rights laws, the overturning of Roe against Wade, the the authorization of of capital punishment for juveniles and the mentally disabled. We're imagining, you know, it's, it's not just a question of which liberal gains will be undone. There's a world in which there's a very aggressive expansion of distinctively conservative policy positions being written into the Constitution. And in that world, you know, what I'm going to do as a lawyer may in some ways look the same day to day. I'll go to work and I'll stand at my computer and I'll write briefs and I'll hope they persuade the court. But what happens in the public may look very different. Uh, and if history is a lesson, you know, we can think back to FDR's campaign against the court in the 30s or Nixon's campaign against it in uh, the 60s. You may start seeing calls to impeach justices. I have already started seeing Democrats saying that if we take uh, enough you know, branches of government back, there's going to be an attempt at court packing. Uh, which would be adding new justices to the court. Uh, I think the court's rulings will be less well-received, and it could more broadly affect people's faith in popular democracy because, you know, one major branch of government they may come to view as nothing more uh, than a bastion uh, of ill-boding. Yeah, I guess just one last one. I I know when one reflects back on the the Supreme Court position that Justice Kennedy filled that of, of Justice Powell, who also had previously served you know, fairly frequently as occasional as a, as a swing justice in cases. That sort of turnover, and obviously it only occurred because a couple of President Reagan's nominees did not get confirmed, uh, most saliently, uh, Robert Bork. Uh, it strikes me that that sort of change is one that you would describe here as creating the sort of consistency that would maintain stability in the court. But what you imagine might happen is something sort of more resembling if Robert Bork had been, been confirmed uh, in that in that situation. And, and one can imagine sort of the difference, court, the, the different court we would have seen over the past 20, 25 years. That's right, but it's also wrong. And, and here are the respects in which it doesn't quite flesh out the full picture. First, the conservative justices on the court now are considerably more conservative than the conservatives who were on the court then. So when you think about Bork joining the justices who were on the court at that time, versus, you know, a, a hypothetical, very conservative judge joining the conservatives who are there now, we are just miles past them. And every empirical study that has been done ranks Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, uh, as well as the chief, among the, you know, five to eight most conservative justices of the past century and possibly in all of American history. And so, A, when you talk about, you know, the court becoming very conservative, that just means something different and a lot more extreme and aggressive now than it would have in 1988. But then there's a different point, which is the underlying fragility of the American democratic and political system. In 1988, you know, it was a perilous time. It was near the end of the Cold War. It's not to say that everything was, you know, flowers and hugs and tea parties. But the strength of the American political system was relatively sound. You know, it had survived Iran-Contra. The people still, at much higher rates than is the case today, reported faith in democracy, faith in government, faith in the major public institutions, you know, the rise of polarization and tribalism had begun, but had not reached anything approaching the peak that it's now at. And so nowadays, when you talk about a massive section of the American people walking away from the court, or possibly even declaring political war on it, 
you're talking about that occurring against the backdrop of just a lot more fragility and a lot more instability in the political system. And as a result, the potential consequences of that may be far more uh, far uh, further reaching and more unnerving. Yeah, we certainly have a different kind of uh, tea parties these days. Um, but we'll go ahead and leave it there now. Thanks, uh, Joshua Matz, Gupta Wessler, and the Take Care blog for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And, and for what it's worth, I won't just end on a sour note. Hopefully, we can still hope that either President Trump will pick a reasonable candidate, uh, a moderate, open-minded candidate, uh, or that the Chief Justice will appreciate the delicacy of his position. I, I, I would not bet in favor of it, but we can all hope that it will happen. And either way, we need to fight on uh, to ensure that the Constitution is interpreted and applied uh, for all Americans. Well, we'll certainly find out here in the next uh, ensuing Supreme Court terms. Thanks for, thanks for your time, Joshua Metz of Gupta Wessler. Thank you. And that's our show for June 29th, 2018. Thank you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. And thanks also to my production staff here, including principally Nick Perez. Don't forget that our show can be now found on iTunes and the podcast app on your mobile devices. Just search for the weekly appellate report. You can also find us search for the daily journal. Any subscriptions, clicks, rates, and reviews are greatly appreciated. And don't forget that listeners of the show are entitled to one hour of California CLE credit. Just take a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.